Hey, Holly. Hey, Dave. What's going on today on the What Difference Does It Make podcast? There's a lot going on, all having to do with this one particular book called Twisted Business, Lessons from My Life in Rock and Roll. This is J.J. French, guitarist of Twisted Sister, but he's not calling this a memoir, is he? He's calling it a bizoir. And by the way, he has a co-author on this. It's Steve Farber. He is one of the world's top leadership and management experts. Ooh, we should get him on the podcast. <laughs> How about that? We got him on the podcast. What? That's great. So we got both J.J. French and Steve Farber coming up, and we're going to learn all about the Twisted philosophy and all about Twisted Sister and all about J.J. French and his insane story. He can weave a story. He has endless stories. Because we went long, we'll alert the affiliates that we went long this, this episode. Holly likes to chop uh, up the good stuff and put it on our YouTube page. And that's what you should do and subscribe to our YouTube page and how they find it. Go to YouTube and look for the What Difference Does It Make podcast and you will see all the outtakes. All JJ's got a lot of stories and a lot of them will be on our YouTube page. I love that. Yeah, so let's get into our interview with JJ French and Steve Farber. Nice. Well, hello there. there hello. It's got the got the yes has the book prominently right. displayed. That's good. And his saying what perfect. What I, what what, what, I what know. are you talking about? Let's see how good JJ is at promoting. Not so much. I oh no, there it is. Okay, where He's in the, the world records. is the book? Yeah, I'm. Yeah, the records distracted me. Yeah, you know, I forgot to put my platinum records up. I know. Shit. Uh, by the way, uh, just just to be clear, I just had a twenty by thirty poster of the cover made to go sitting there for future podcasts, okay? Ah, uh, uh, a lot of good it does is, does it Yeah, now. what good is that oh, now? Yeah. I just wrote the greatest song ever, but you're not going to hear it. I'm going to play that uh, Play that next. <laughs> well, we can, fo oh, I guess you can't Photoshop into a Zoom. Well, how do you like the Photoshop of the Platinum Records? I do, <laughs> I mean, yeah. They look so real. They do look legit. <laughs> Don't they? I mean, like, actually, there's. Oh, uh, and look at the. And you actually, you're still spinning vinyl, so that's nice. What's oh, up? Well, who do those belong to? I want to get them started. I know. Don't I want actually. I on the vinyl. What is the vinyl? What's on the turntable right now? Keb Mo. Oh, very table. nice. Okay. And by the way, just so you know, so I write for an audio magazine, so I am actually in the world of super high end audio, and my friend just reviewed a four hundred and fifty thousand dollar turntable. I just went to his house to look at it. It weighs 770 pounds. The platter's 280 pounds. The tone arms are $80,000 each. The phono cartridges are $20,000. And the question is, well, does it sound good? Yeah. The answer is, well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's not resounding. That's not I a, mean, like a... Yeah, it I mean, sounds good. It sounds good. You know, it doesn't suck. Yeah. Sounds good. I so, mean, does, so does this. Yeah, it sounds pretty I, good. Exactly. Oh, you Luddites. You know, <laughs> I'm telling you, no, no, we, anyway, high-end audio is an insane, it, crazy... It really is. I, I just bought a, uh, a new record player, but, you know, you <laughs> hear about the higher end and all of a sudden, like, I, I, I just can't, I can't do it. I just can't. I still, well, I'm still thinking of the ones that, you know, with the, the needle where it just drops the, the album, you know, like you yeah. can stack five on top and, and you have like, a, like you an close, iPod. You close the cover. Yes. Yeah. Like close, when, when you were a kid. Yeah. Well, look, just, just to, to put a capper on this <laughs> element, move on. I, when I worked at Lyric Audio, which was the most expensive hi-fi store, I write about it in the book. I was selling a speaker cable that was $12,000 a pair, which was the most expensive cable I'd ever seen at the time. And then the owner said to me, oh, we have this new cable and it's $22,000 for a 15 foot pair of speaker cable. So the owner of the speaker cable company comes in the store and he was a former used car salesman from Detroit who obviously understood the whole scheme and scam of high-end audio. And I walked up to him and I said, hey, listen, I just need to know something from you. You know, like I just figured out how to sell this $12,000 cable. What do I tell people who asked me what's in this $22,000 cable. And I will never forget his response to that question. He said, if anybody asks you what's in my cable, tell them there's a lot of good shit in it. Oh. <laughs> and, and I said, how is that a technical answer? <laughs> and he said to me, look, man, if you're spending $25,000 on a turntable, $100,000 on speakers and $50,000 on amplifier, you are not going to Kmart to buy your speaker cable. You got that? You are coming to Lyric. And if you're coming to Lyric, you want to buy the best, you spend $22,000. It's all relative. And you know what? I started using that logic and I sold a lot of that cable. 
I think that kind of leads us into the book. Right. Yeah, good. Let's <laughs> I mean, in a way, time. I guess you learned at an early age, like, uh, you know, a lot of what you say is BS. But, you know, if you speak with confidence and you, you kind of know what you're talking about, uh, you throw out some truths, uh, you know, you, you can make your sale. But that was nothing. There was no content in that. Right. Well, I mean, like, all right. So you started out in high school. You uh, in the book, you talk about you. You were kind of a you were a drug dealer. Well, before that, I, was, I sold cookies. And oh, that's okay. Store. Right. I started out selling cookies to raise money to buy a guitar, and you know, the Boy Scouts and cookie sales lead directly to heroin use. Ultimately, <laughs> sure. Uh, with five years, people have yet to connect the dots. It's science, right? It's science, but uh, it went from <laughs> I went from the cookies to firecrackers to weed. And so I was a weed salesman for, and I'm, that does mean I'm 50 years ahead of my time because everyone is selling weed now. Yeah. I told you 50 years ago to get on the program that people weren't paying attention, which is good for me. I made a lot of money. But Okay. So you, you I never. I am going to tag the Boy Scouts of America in this. Yeah, you, sh you should. <laughs> what was the secret to selling cookies? Because were you persistent? The secret to it was, the secret to it was this, as I say in, in the book, and, and Steve has heard a billion times. Um, my, I wanted to buy a guitar. My father was, you know, I don't have any money. I said, 25 bucks. I can't afford it. So I had been thrown out of the Boy Scouts uh, for having long hair and for taking a political stand at the age of 12, because I said, uh, I don't need to get a letter from a rabbi to become an Eagle Scout. I think that's <laughs> offensive to me. I said, the guy doesn't know me and my parents are not practicing Jews. And I said, I'm, I refuse to get a letter from a stranger saying that I'm a good person. I don't care. So I quit. But I had sold the most cookies in the Boy Scout troop the year before 110 boxes. So the Boy Scout master calls me two months after I quit and he goes or thrown out. And he goes, listen, you broke the record last year. We want to keep our quota up. Would you sell cookies? And I was really pissed off. And I, my father goes, put, put the phone down, put the phone. Down. <laughs> my father's a jewelry salesman, you know, and he was a very Damon Runyon-esque, 47th Street, fast jewelry salesman kind of guy, you know? And he says to me, tell him you want 10 cents a box, commission to sell the cookies. And if you do that, we'll sell enough cookies for you to get the guitar. So I said, would you give me 10 cents a box commission? He goes, done. So my father drags me down to 47th Street and makes every rabbi on 47th Street <laughs> buy cookies. So we sold 242 boxes, hence $24.20. Hence my dad kicked in 80 cents, the big spender <laughs> and I bought my first guitar. All right. So it's who, you know, to get those sales. But just to have the idea, just the idea was very, it's resourceful. You know, I'm a New York city kid. I'm not saying that that means automatically that you do those things, but I do believe that living in New York city, growing up in New York city, getting to the speed of New York city, spending your life on 47th street or 48th street with the music industry. It was based is a speed to it. And no one I knew at the time thought anything of it other than that was the speed by which we did business. So there were all these young hustlers, tons of them. And I'm not saying it in a nefarious way, just everybody was out hustling. And so I believe that was an advantageous to me to grow up there. I also think our parents did it right in that they made us do something for the money, work for the money instead of just, you know, giving us everything. Uh, boy, we could really go into that one. <laughs> I have a daughter... <laughs> I have a daughter. Steve's got kids. I mean, we could talk all day long about this generation of kids don't understand. When, when we were young, gasoline was only 15 cents a gallon. You know what you should do, son? You should go out and sell some weed. Yeah. That's, there's money. There's money. In that. You know, my daughter and I. Don't I think you this, got that particular pep talk from your No, parents. but my daughter threw a very Seinfeldian logic at me recently. She, uh, she was complaining. I said to her, you know, everything you do, you try, then you stop, and you try, and you stop. Uh, you never follow through. And she goes, it's all your fault. And I go, why is it my fault? She goes, it's your whole generation's fault. It's all your parents' fault. All my friends are in the same boat. All of us are in the same boat. And I said, what boat is that? She goes, you told us you loved us. You told us we were great. You said we were never going to fail. And we're all failing. And it's because you gave us an unrealistic view of the world. And I said, let me get this straight. You're telling me it's because I told you I loved you. I supported you 100% and that you can succeed in anything you do. And that is what destroyed your ability to succeed. And this is what she says to me. She goes, Dad, let me ask you this. Did your parents ever tell you they loved you? 
And I said, well, my mother never did. And my father only said it to me on the day he died. She goes, okay, did your parents ever support a thing you did? I said, well, they didn't support me really when I was a drug dealer. They certainly didn't support me when I was, uh, you know, a transvestite heavy metal guitar player. They definitely didn't support me when I dropped out of high school. She said, okay, so let's get this straight. They never told you they loved you. They never supported you. And you came out just fine. <laughs> so. Sounds like she yes. has your sales skills, though. Like she, she convinced you. <clears throat> it sounds like she's confusing correlation with causation, but that's a whole other story. Let's not even go into that. Well, twist, twisted logic. And it was okay. So <laughs> very good. <laughs> yeah, and also, I mean, the in the first paragraph, you say in your book, John Siegel has no focus. He has no organizational skills. He will never amount to anything. And this is from a teacher in the fifth grade. Did you find that as motivational? I mean, what, what, how does a, how does a 10 year old, uh, absorb that? Uh, the same way most people who succeed absorb criticism, which is either you fold or you go, I'll show them, you know, now the fact is, you know, when I was in 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, I was a very insecure kid. I mean, that's not an unusual story. You know, that people are insecure. I mean, how, I, I was very insecure, thought I was ugly thought that I didn't have any friends, which is really funny because going back, running into people I know from school, they always said, oh, you were the most popular guy. Everyone liked you. I said, no, they didn't like me. Nobody liked me. I was, I never was the funny guy. I was never the smart guy. I was never the good looking guy. The weird thing that happened when the hippie culture happened and the hair grew and the drug dealing started, all of a sudden I became Mr. Popular because I was, a, you know, I was selling weed. And, uh, and all of a sudden I had a million friends and I thought, wow, this is kind of a cool thing until the whole thing went to hell, which I describe in the book by 72, it all kind of, you know, kind of crashed and burned, but it was weird. Um, I did not have, did not think I possessed any of those skills. And as we got into the book and Steve extracted these stories from me, you know, where I actually had to go back and think what happened at this time and this time and this time and this time, that's when I started to realize that my brain actually functioned in a rather rational, organized way, which didn't occur until we were like into, you know, into the writing of the book. Talk about the writing of the book and, and was it Steve, did, were you, you guys developed a friendship through a seminar that you, you put together and was this through a bunch of uh, conversations that you, that you've had with JJ about, you know, this, we need to put this down. This could be something. What, what was the spark that said, that kind of led you to like, let's do something with this, with your story? Yeah, it, um, it was one of those sparks that lit very, uh, very quickly. Actually, we, we were at a conference together. And JJ tagged along with Sharon, who's his girlfriend at the time, now his wife. It was a business conference and she was working at Forbes.com and he's a curious guy. So he came along just to see what was what. And I was speaking at that conference as well as attending it. And I gave, uh, I, I gave a talk on my body of work, which is about ex what I call extreme leadership. And uh, I opened it up for Q&A. So I'm talking about the role of love in business and and, and, you know, people need to be, you know, good to each other to make a business work. And he stands up, he takes the microphone, first guy to ask a question. You see, there's no surprise there. And he says, I am in the entertainment. I had, we hadn't yet met. So this was our first interaction yeah. in front of an audience with the microphone in hand. He says, I'm in the entertainment business, which is a business full of scumbags and assholes. And I've never felt I'm paraphrasing now, but it's something like I've never felt like I, I needed to be that kind of person in order to succeed in this business. And the kind of stuff that you're talking about, he said, that's the way I, I run my business. So that was our first interaction. And then we got to talking, we had breakfast, and I heard the Twisted Sister story for the first time. And the hook for me was when he said, I came to the conclusion early on in, in our career that there was no place for drugs and alcohol in the business of rock and roll. And I'm thinking of 
what? You know, twisted. This is twisted sister. What do you mean? No dr-? So he explained the whole this, the whole scenario about how you know they had they in the early days of the band they had you know they had lost people, people disappeared, people died, and drugs was killing everybody. So he decided that's it and put a new band together, including D. Snyder and the band that eventually made it, and they were all just no, no drugs or alcohol. That was their agreement. So I thought, well, that's a that's a pretty interesting story. Tell me more. And when you say to JJ French, tell me more, <laughs> that's, that's really all you got to do. <laughs> and then, so I just sat back and I listened to the whole story. And I said, there, there were two things that were really clear to me from that very first breakfast was number one, you got to get up on stage and you got to tell your story. You got to be a, you know, be a speaker because you have a great story to tell and, and you're just a natural storyteller. Mm-hmm. And number two, you got to write a book. So right from the beginning, it was really clear that he had incredible talent in this area. What was not clear, and it took years to get to that point, was that I would be involved in the writing of the book. I was helping from the, the speaker's perspective because, you know, I've been doing that kind of thing for 30 years, right? Well, now I have. So the book part of it came along a little bit later. He had a couple of stops and starts with, with another co-author. And finally, we just looked at each other and said, let's just do this together. Because I've written, I've written four books, and this is new for him, and and I, I I love him, I love his story. So my job was, as he said, to extract the stories, which again is not the hard part, uh, but then translating it onto the page so it works right. actually as a book, mm-hmm. and you know in the written form. That was that was my job. But this is his story; it's his voice, and it, it's just been it's been a great deal of fun to work on together. So who came up with the term or the, the term bizwar? Oh, I came up, well, Steve thought of the name, I think Twisted Business as like an automatic, well, of course it's going to be a business book. You know, I'm thinking, you know, I got to write a book and who knows how many shots you get at writing a book. You maybe only get one shot at writing a book. So that means I'm going to have to tell my entire story. It's going to like be war and peace all in one. It's going to be everything. <laughs> it's going to be a business book and it's going to be a memoir. So I thought, wow, it's a business book and a memoir, business book, memoir, business book, memoir, bizwar. Oh, rom-com, romantic comedy, romantic comedy, a dramedy, dramatic comedy, dramatic comedy, bizwar. I'm a marketer. You know, I think of marketing ideas. So I thought, wow, it's a bizwar. In fact, every book about a business person is a bizwar, whether they call it a bizwar or not, because how do you develop your theory of business without telling your story of your life, your experiences in life tell you how you're going to run your life, meaning how you're going to run your business. And I don't care if it's Steve Jobs uh, or anybody else. Those are bizwars. So I decided to call it a bizwar up front. I said to the, I said to the publisher, I got you a name. You're going to call it a bizwar and it's going to be a bizwar because it's a business book and a memoir. And what this book is, this book is me going through all this crap with the band and my life and finally saying, okay, guys, this is a life. And this is the truth about the life. Good, bad, or whatever. You know, Steve said, you got to be truthful. You know, so when it sucked, it sucked. When it hurt, it hurt. When you made mistakes, you made mistakes. You have to come out and you have to kind of lay it all out there, which is not a comfortable thing for a lot of people because people cover their crap up with a bunch of bullshit and lies. So you're going to tell them, you know, we fucked up here. We went bankrupt. I screwed up here, blah, 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 blah. I had two heart operations. I had prostate cancer. My daughter has an eye disease. That's a leading cause of blindness and girl. I mean, Everything is out there. You know why? Because John Lennon said, life is what was, happens when you're making other plans. So here's the deal. Here's the whole deal. Here's everything. And if I hate to sound so cliched, but if one person can get anything out of this that in any way is positive towards their own view of life, then I've done my job. And when I hear people say that about their books, I go, oh, God, it's so cliched. If I can help one person. But the truth is, I had a tough, I had a great life. I had a tough life successful life, failed life, failed marriages, successful marriages, had a kid. Here's the story. This is it.
you're documenting a lot of your activities in the moment. Is that yeah. is that something you learned as as a kid? And like, you know, no, that was a, a direct reaction to the fact that my mom died, my girlfriend left me, and the first version of the band broke up in the same week, and I went through a severe depression and considered suicide, which I talk about in the book. I was miserable and depressed and really considered killing myself. I was in that much pain, which is why when someone tells me that they're in that much pain, I don't write that off. I understand it 100%. I was in a black hole, a horrible black hole. And the fact that I didn't kill myself is extraordinary. And the fact that I got through it was even more extraordinary. And my response to helping myself get through it without going to a therapist, which was a big mistake, because I will tell you that any time after that happened, I was getting close to that mental state, I immediately went to a therapist and I immediately got some medication because I wasn't going to go back and revisit that hole, that black hole of despair. However, I started keeping the diary on the day of my mother's funeral, which was December 8th, 1974. And because I kept diaries for the next 15 years, especially going through the first eight months of that depression and coming out of that depression in August. And when I say I came out of that depression, I mean, I was in pain every day for eight months. And I woke up one morning in the middle of August with no pain. And I went, I'm not in pain. How come I'm not in pain? I slept the night. I slept seven hours for the first time. in, in Why am I not in pain? This is a mistake. I'm going to be in pain tomorrow. And I wasn't in pain the next day. And I thought, okay, I'm not a doctor, but maybe because I was not clinically depressed, the depression was more like a cut on the wrist that just needed to heal. By no means am I saying that this is a rational or logical way to handle it. What I am saying is, is that I got over that depression. Writing about me getting over that depression in the future allowed me to look back. So then I started keeping up diaries of dates and, and nights that were good and nights that were bad and why the nights were good and why the nights were bad. And the diary became a tool. Hence the book, The Twisted Method, in the book, T-W-I-S-T-E-D, there are stories that go with every letter, which has to do with tools that I used to get myself through it. That is what it's all about. So when you go to watch motivational speakers, most of these people who do this or everyone has a theory. They have a guiding theory of why they believe they were successful or why you can be successful. And I think it was my back and forth with Steve that made me realize that if I could take the word twisted because it was an easier marketing concept, yeah. all right? It was a perfect marketing concept. When I thought about the twisted method, I said, I just have to come up with the words and the descriptions and the phrases that could encompass the entire description. So we came up with T-W-I-S-T-E-D, tenacity, wisdom, inspiration, stability, trust, excellence, and discipline. And I emailed Steve and I went, I've got the, the framework. Now let's dump all the stories into the framework because it all worked out perfectly. And those diaries were the beginning of my understanding of how to deal with the preponderance and overwhelming amounts of frustrations and challenges and crises and catastrophes, as well as the high points of my life. JJ French can tell a story, and it's tough to cut him off, but we're going to have to stop for a second, and we're going to take a break, and we shall be right back. Welcome back to the What Difference Does It Make podcast with JJ French and Steve Farber here to tell us more stories. I've been wanting to ask about your parents okay. because your parents seem really interesting to me. <laughs> They're fascinating, actually. I was that was the best part is the is your origin story. Yeah. My uh, my father was a jewelry salesman. My mother was a political consultant. They didn't really get along all that well. I mean, they really did not get along. But you know what? It was the times. And uh, all their friends drank and smoked, you know, two packs of cigarettes a day and their highballs at night and discussed politics and left wing politics, Jewish Upper West Side left wing politics. And because that was the atmosphere I grew up in, it was this intellectual group of activists that were former socialists, former communists, became reformed Democrats at the right time when Kennedy came into office. So, you know, it was like it was a hopeful period of time. So my memory was full of I mean, I attended, I was in a coffee clutch. I was in a car with John Kennedy um, going up to a coffee clutch in, uh, in Washington Heights when I was eight years old, you know, with my mom. My mom produced and promoted Bobby Kennedy's speech on 
Broadway and 89th Street in front of the Garden Supermarket. Growing up in that kind of environment, my guitar player, teacher, Mike Mirapol being the son of Judas Nathan Rosenberg, my bunkmate in camp being the brother of one of the slain civil rights workers, my involvement in the anti-war activities. To say that my parents didn't approve of me is not really the truth. I mean, that's a comic exaggeration. They raised an activist, and that was me. Someone had a, a strong moral center. My mother was a genius. Evelyn Segal was a genius. And her last protege is still in Congress. That's Jerry Nadler. But my mother and my father, it's like watching two different movies. You talk to my mother and it's like reading War and Peace. And you talk to my father, it's like watching Guys and Dolls, you know? So like my mother gave me this great advice when she was on her deathbed. You know, I said to her, I said, well, how do I know how to vote when you die? And she said to me, let me explain this to you. She said, wars come and go. The economy goes up and down. It's all bullshit. You vote for the person that will put the kind of person on the Supreme Court that you support. She goes, the rest of it's just noise, just noise. Ignore all of it. Just follow the Supreme Court. That's what's going to rule your life. And fuck all of it. She said, just vote for the person that you think will nominate the kind of person given the opportunity to nominate that puts you on the Supreme Court with your philosophy and you will always make the right choice. That was my mother. That's very high minded. Wow. Very intellectual. Great, great advice. This is my father's advice. If you're going to fuck another woman when you're married, make sure you don't do it in the same zip code. Okay. That was my father's advice to me. So I had a very New Yorky upbringing. You know, when I got thrown out of Brandeis High School, my mother wrote a letter to the principal, you know, like, how dare you throw my son out, you know, for starting a demonstration. And, and she threatened them and they put me back in school again and they threw me out again and I, I sued the board of education for violating my constitutional rights. And because of my mother's political connections, they got them to drop the case because there was a a class action suit at the same time. This is before it was the ECLC, the Emergency Civil Liberties Union Committee. And we were their very first case. And the case was involved a girl who wanted to make Stuyvesant High School co-ed. And she won her case, which is why Stuyvesant High School went co-ed. Another student uh, objected to having to salute or say the word under God in the Pledge of Allegiance because he felt that was unconstitutional. Because of that, we don't do the Pledge of Allegiance anymore in the New York City school system. And I got thrown out of school for starting a demonstration, and they, they gave me a court date, and then they didn't want it to get to court. So they just said, what can we do to make it go away? And we made a deal to go to a different school, and my mother was res- responsible for that. She was a really wonderful woman. I, I convinced her to go to a Grateful Dead concert with me. I smoked a joint with <laughs> the Grateful concert. Uh, She grew some pot plants in the apartment. And, you know, when I started dating my girlfriend, Gail, who's the great granddaughter of Robert E. Lee, my my mother was, I didn't know who was more shocked, her mother or my mother. Because she dated me because I was a Jew drug dealer from New York, which is the worst fucking nightmare you could have if you're a Southern or, you know, Southern woman with a daughter that you think looks like Miss Atlanta. And I'm dating the girl whose great grandfather was Robert E. Lee, who would say to me shit like, you make a girl's heart flutter like a bird's wing. Now, frankly, as a 19 year old drug dealer in New York and Jewish, you don't normally get a chance to hear that kind of a presentation. (laughs) So it was a very strange, it was a strange household. It was a strange time. And this was the atmosphere that I grew up in. Okay, so you tie the business to the band. What was it? You you knew you were a good business person because of what you had done in your life up until then. What was it during the course of the band that made you realize, I have to take charge of this? Well, there was two things that happened. One was early in, in the early days, we had a 
bad manager, the first manager. I didn't put the copy of the contract in the book. I should have, because I have, I found a copy of the first management contract in which we get 40%. I mean, don't ask me why. Wow. Like, you know, I just, I I was just like some dumbass kid, like blind lemon pledge or something. I don't know. I just signed some horrible management deal. So when the band fell apart in the beginning stages, I took it upon myself to write the ship. However, understand this, that I went through two bad, I went through two tough times with lead singers that that were nuts. The first and second lead singer, the first lead singer, Michael thought of the name, uh, but he was an alcoholic. He pulled out a gun on the drummer and threatened to kill him in a bar fight, which is written about in the book. Mm-hmm. In fact, the club that that took place in, that club owners pinged me the other day. I haven't spoken to that guy in 40 years. And I said to him, George, you know, this happened upstairs at the Sahara <laughs> at your place. And he goes, yeah, those guns were lying there. It was, a, it was crazy. You know, that was part of it. Then I said, well, I can't trust lead singers. I'm going to be the lead singer. So this is first self-realization. My voice sucks. God created Lou Reed so I could do cover material. (laughs) Like, my voice is terrible. Like, how do you know you've done a Lou Reed song badly? Sing it on key. That's how you know you have fucked up a Lou Reed song. Okay? So Lou Reed became my God because, I mean, and Dylan too. Hey, I mean, you sing like that, you can get away with it. However, in the bar scene, Nobody really cares about Lou Reed and Bob Dylan. They want Led Zeppelin. So I took over the lead singing role. And of course, the band really tanked pretty quickly, at which point the realization that I needed other people to become successful really hit home. I couldn't do it myself. You know, maybe Bruce Springsteen could call it Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band and Tom Petty could call it Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers and Elvis Costello could call it Elvis Costello and the Attractions. That wasn't me. Me was a band framework. You know, me, I needed people. So I needed a guy who write and a guy who sang. And D was a great singer. And I needed another guitar player. And Eddie Ojeda is a great guitar player. And I needed great bass players. I needed great drummers. I can't do it all myself. And if I'm going to have all these people, I have to make a decision. Am I going to pay them so I can be the star? Or are we all going to suffer together and make it together? You know, that's the two different theories of bands. You either make it as a band or you make it as one person with a backing band and you make sure they get paid because those people aren't going to share the stardom with you. I said, I'm going to share the stardom with everybody. And that's the same kind of attitude with Steve. I'm not, I am a collaborator by nature, which means I need another person to help realize my dreams. And that was the impetus of creating the band and bringing Dion. Now D was nuts. Okay. D was crazy, but he was totally straight. And I said to him, you don't drink and do drugs. I didn't know what he was going to say because he was so hyper. You know, he drank like coffee and his leg was all going up and down like this, you know? And I went, he goes, fuck drugs, man. I never did drugs in my life. I said, you drink us. Fuck no. I didn't drink. In fact, the first drink he ever took was on the night that he got married to Suzette in 1981. They had a glass of champagne. Right. So I said to D, whoa, I need this guy. He may be crazy. And, you know, I make fun of D all the time. I mean, when I announce him on stage, I say, ladies and gentlemen, please give it up for the guy that looks like Sarah Jessica Parker dipped in a vat of acid. You know, this is how I introduce him. (laughs) He's an amazing sense of humor, but he's an amazingly talented and dedicated guy. Now, if you look at the book, at the back of the book, you see all those concert dates? Mm -hmm. Did you look at them? Yeah. Did you go, oh, my God, that's crazy? I was exhausted just reading them. Yeah. So imagine (laughs) playing them. And imagine the kind of business you have to create with people who are your partners who can sustain that much work. Right. I had to find the right guys who did not shy away from that much dedication. That dedication is overwhelming. You know, I look at that list there. I can put aside the jokes about the fact that I can't hear, as my wife will tell you, I'm, I'm completely deaf. But the fact is there's thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of shows and that's how we became good. But in order to do that, you got to find people who are willing to hitch their wagon to you. And it's hard. I want to rock. rock. I want to rock. I want to rock. Tell me not to play 
you did turn down D. Snyder the first time, or it was the whole band, and then that led I to did. another story. Right. Okay. Yeah, Why don't you tell I, I, that? I didn't. Yeah, I mean, because I did not know that the two guys in the band at the time were conspiring to steal the gear from me. You know, as I go into the book, you know, look, what do I say in the book? We were turned down more times than Bedfew in a whorehouse and come back more times than Freddy Krueger. I mean, it makes for a great story. I know how to sell a great story. I know how to make fun of myself and make it sound easily accessible. But can I tell you, it was painful when they stole the truck. It was painful when, you know, when we tried to start up again with me singing, it was painful. The rejection was painful painful and then you get d and then you slowly climb back and then you get rejected from the record labels which is painful there's so much pain associated with it but none of those painful issues led to drinking and doing drugs and this is the important message here the important message is life is hard enough but if you're going to cushion yourself with drugs and alcohol your ability to actually deal with them in a cogent responsible way becomes nearly impossible. So we were able to confront all of these issues head on, clear-eyed, rationally, which is opposed to everything ever written about Keith Richards on the planet Earth, you know, and that's what worked for us. And that's what made the story so compelling for Steve. And it's a true story. You, you say that Dee told you that he did not do drugs or drink. But you went through a lot of other players, a lot of other musicians that did have issues that you believed off the bat and then found out, you know, to the contrary. Yeah, it was weird because imagine, imagine the band is a very successful bar band, right? Like we're doing really, really well in the bars. And so we have a vacancy as a drummer and the guy comes in and he's auditioning and, he, and we go, oh, by the way, just one more thing you should be real. You should realize we don't approve of drugs and alcohol. One of two things happens at that audition. They either lie to you and say, well, I don't do drugs now because I really want the gig. Or they tell you, are you, what are you crazy? What, what do you mean you don't do drugs now? And so to the guys who did not take the gig because they were honest with me, I give them all the credit in the world because they wanted to do all that. They think it went with the territory. To the guys who bullshitted me and told me they didn't and then did, they got thrown out and set us back, you know, another couple of months, another couple of months, another couple of months. So that's what was that was interesting. The, the, the realization that they'll go, oh, sure, man. No, I don't do that shit. Next thing you know, they're doing heroin and methadrine. Yeah. I mean, one guy, one guy, one drummer, we're playing a show. Two very well-known disc jockeys come down to promote the show from a very big radio station. We're in the dressing room in between sets, you know, and these two big DJs come in. They're introducing, talking to us, and the drummer comes in and collapses into an epileptic seizure right in between them, like in a spinal tap moment. Yeah gurgling at the mouth, saliva coming out. I take a wallet, shove it in his mouth so he doesn't, you know, break his jaw and chew his teeth out. I'm like, what happened? And of course, the girls in the front row, you know, the, the fans that always come after us, they said, oh, he did a San Francisco speedball. I said, that's heroin and meth? They go, yeah. And I went, son of a bitch. Okay. So up until that moment, I didn't know that that's what he did. But that's an example of another night of thousands of nights of the band. So you're standing there, you know, with these disc jockeys having to do a set and thinking you're going to do another show and your drummer just collapses in front of them in an epileptic seizure due to a drug overdose. You know, welcome to the world, you know, or the night that Michael pulled the gun out on the drummer. Michael was drunk. The drummer was knew Michael and Michael was yelling for the bass player because of the bass player did something to a roadie and the drummer said, shut up, you're just drunk. And he grabbed a gun that was loaded and on the floor that we were staying in, we were living in a barracks like location. He pulled the gun named at the drum and said, I can kill you now. And I was like, I walked in on it. I was 22 and went, Oh my God, I'm about to witness a murder. Yeah. Gee, I'm about to witness the end of my band and a murder. And uh, luckily the guy threw the gun out. Now that guy, the singer, did you guys see the documentary? In the documentary, Michael, the singer, is not in the documentary. And yet he's the guy who thought of the name of the band. Why isn't he in the documentary? Because the alcoholic, sadly, got hit by a car coming out of a bar one day and suffered permanent brain damage and forgot everything. Mm. So we went out to interview him with the director. And I said to Michael, Michael, tell us the story of how you thought of the name of the band. You know, I didn't take credit for it. Michael thought of the name. I give him credit. I said, Michael, tell us how you thought of the name. I don't remember. How do you not remember? How do you, I mean, you're not in the band anymore, true, but how do you not remember? 
He didn't remember the night he told us the name of the band, which I go into in the book. Right. He went out to get drunk because we had a band argument. He's in a local bar. He calls the house. We're living in a house in Hocus, New Jersey. I pick up the phone. Michael, I got a great name. Twist his sister. I said, oh, my God, that's like the best name. I run downstairs. Michael thought this name. And Michael comes back. I go, Michael, I think we're going to change the name. He goes, what? What name? I said, Twisted Sister, you called the house. <laughs> you told me the name. So if I hadn't have picked up the phone, yeah. seriously, you know, if a tree falls in the forest and nobody's there, does it make a sound? If no one picked up the phone that day, we wouldn't be Twisted Sister. We would have been another name. Like I came up with some really cutesy name, The Max Factor. I thought, oh, that was a really <laughs> hip kind of Jewish play on words, you sure. know, like Uber hip, Lower East Side kind of thing. Max Factor. <laughs> That's really great. You know, they rejected that shit in like two seconds, you know, <laughs> but that, you know, so what happens when you run into these kinds of issues over and over and over and over again, you develop a pretty good, a thick skin and a pretty good sense of humor. There's another notoriously sober band, Gene Simmons and Paul Stanley. They they don't do drugs at all. You had a brush with them early on when they were changing their name from Wicked Lester to, to Kiss. What were your impressions of, of that those early stages of Kiss? My impressions were that now here I am straight, and I was trying to figure out what to do with myself. So it's June of 72, and I am uh, babysitting for a lawyer in my building named Peter Thole, who's a very famous entertainment lawyer. And in an elevator conversation, he says to me, are you looking to join a band? Because he heard me play guitar out of the window, because that's what we do in Manhattan. We don't have garages. We don't have garage bands. We have roof bands. You know, I used to open the window in my uh, building and I used to like play, you know, like really loud. I mean, to the point where this this is like a little side story, but, you know, this is a funny podcast. So this is a side story. First big amplifier, June of 68, in my room, windmilling like crazy with a Marshall stack. Windows open, my mother's out. I'm smoking so much weed, it looks like Chernobyl in my room. I'm fucking wasted. I'm blasting. I'm like, you know, I live on the Upper West Side. I'm blasting. I'm blasting. You know, this goes on for about an hour. And then the door, I'm hearing the door knock. And I'm like, oh, God, who is it? Could it be the super? I don't know. And I open the door thinking it's the cops. And it's this woman. She goes, You son of a bitch. Do you have any fucking idea how loud you are? I'm trying to work on my thesis for my PhD and I can't concentrate. And I looked at her and I said, I don't recognize you. What apartment are you in? She goes, what apartment? I live on 87th and Columbus <laughs> Avenue, which is full place. Right? Yeah. Oh, God. Spectacular. <laughs> That's the greatest ab I ever had in my life. <laughs> so I'm trying to find a band. And, and, I, and he says, I'm, I, I represent a guy who's a producer who's working with a band called Wicked Lester. And, and through that, I auditioned for them. And, it, and it lasted, the audition lasted a couple of weeks. And I never heard back. And that was it. However, I joined a hippie cover band that summer and played Allman Brothers tunes. And, and uh, that September, I still didn't have a band. And uh, then the Dolls started playing at the Mercer Arts Center. So this is a big deal about for Dolls fans, right? It's a big deal. So the Dolls were the house band at the Mercer Arts Center. So what happens is I come home as a hippie and I decide I get an album, a David Bowie album, a Lou Reed album, a Martha Hoople album. I see this shagged haircut, blonde hair. And I said, well, that's, that's going to be the new John. The old John Segal is dead. I'm going to be a glitter guy, whatever that means. I cut my hair, dye it blonde. And friends of mine know the dolls. And I knew the dolls. I knew Johnny because he was, he was a drug addict from Central Park. And I used to probably deal to him and his buddy. So I kind of knew them. And uh, they said, well, the dolls, man, the dolls, 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 dolls. So I go down to see the dolls. Except now I'm glitter. You know, I'm like blonde haired, I'm shag haircut, you know, 
this is great. And I walk in to see the dolls and like, they were awful. Like they just, you know, if they That's didn't look the way they did about them, yeah, but they'd be, they'd be laughed out of any fucking, they were awful. They were just yeah. an awful band. I mean, I can't lie about it. People say, Oh, the dolls, legend, legend in my ass. They were awful. They just couldn't play, you know, now, and I'm watching this scene, which was Warholian, you know, in its, in its presentation, all these Warhol downtown freaks. And I'm looking at the dolls at how bad they are. And I'm thinking, so this is the end result of five years of the Fillmore East existence where we had Jimi Hendrix and the Jefferson airplane and Janis Joplin and Jeff Beck and Joe Cocker and 10 years after, and you know, all these great, great artists, Crosby, Stills and Nash and the who, and you know, this is, and what do we have to show for it? Five years of evolution. And this is what we have, this fucking caveman bullshit of bands that can't even fucking play their way out of a paper bag. And that's supposed to be the end result of all this greatness. And I couldn't accept it. And around that time, I saw an ad for the paper and it was Gene and Paul still advertising. And I called up and at that time they said, no, we just got a guy. And his name is Ace Paul Fraley. And they invited me down to their loft in October. And I went to see them in their loft and they knew exactly who they were and what they wanted to be and how to present it. Yeah. You know, they were going to be like a British rock band like Slade and they were going to have Marshall amplifiers and they kind of knew they got it. They really got it. And I went, wow, that's the way I want to sound this doll shit. You know, it doesn't, and I wanted to see the dolls every day. I mean, I saw the dolls a tons of times because I knew them and, and I went to see them a lot. They were great. Once I will give this to them. They played a December show 1972 at the film the newly reopened for more reason ironically enough the producer of that show was our movie director andy horn and i went to that show and it was eric and the magic tramps teenage lust and the dolls and the dolls were, were good and i thought to myself well god damn i'm glad they're good because i don't want them to keep sucking you know, they put on a really good show. It was a riot at the Fillmore. I mean, they invited kids on stage. It was a real rock and roll debacle. And it was kind of interesting. Um, but then I saw them 20 times after that, and they were just the worst, you know. But Kiss just knew who they were. So, yes, I didn't make it with Kiss, but it didn't bother me. I wasn't good enough at the time. I say that in the book. How yeah. much more honest can you possibly say? I don't, like, sugarcoat it. Don't go, they're not for me. I wasn't good enough. Yeah. Okay, one more Kiss question because i'm i'm curious who came up with the with the logo first because i know kiss has kiss and twisted sisters still have the similar logos who's yeah. whose was developed first is or was uh, that an homage to kiss at all no or? no no, okay. no 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 first of all our logo is way less associated with kiss and it could be with van halen and a million other bands that wound up having similar kinds of yeah. typefaces okay i mean do you look these days at, at death metal bands it looks like it looks like dyslexic Chinese. Yeah, writing. they all look like, the same. You yeah. can't tell the name of the band. Anyway, um, no, Kiss had that logo. I think Ace came up with the concept because right. if I remember, they had they had a uh, I think a sheet with the rough drawing on it. I think I think they credit Ace with the with the logo. That might be the only thing they credit Ace for. <laughs> you know, but you know, but listen, I'll tell you what I'll tell you what I've gone on record saying about Ace. You ask me who the top three guitar players in the United States. Are, I will rephrase it the three guitar players that inspired more kids to become rock stars, Jimi Hendrix, Eddie Van Halen, Ace Frehley. I don't care what you think about Ace as a player. Technically, he probably played in front of more kids and inspired more kids to want to become a rock star. I give him all that credit and I give kids all the credit in the world for knowing who they were and being true to their audience. They knew. Oh. Okay, Steve, I'm curious, were you a fan of the music? You know, it's, it's, uh, it's a great question. Um, so no, I was never a Twisted Sister fan. I wasn't a metal guy at all. I was, uh, I, I was more of a, you know, the, the Grateful Dead, you know, Bob Dylan and what we now call Americana. But, uh, but I'll tell you, I, I always loved the band name, Twisted Sister. I mean, I always thought that was the greatest, the greatest name, even though I didn't really know much about the band. So when, when JJ and I first started to get to know each other, Here's how this how this transpired. As we got to talking, he said, "You know, I'm a musician too. I, you know, I, I I play guitar and all that." He said, "Oh yeah." So he takes out his phone and he starts showing me pictures. He said, "Okay, here's a picture of my daughter. That was one picture," and then he starts scrolling through his vintage guitar collection, one guitar after another. And I'm going, "Holy shit, this is incredible!" And he said, "You need to come to New York and have your way with with my guitars." 
So eventually I did. And I remember the first time I, I went out to, to visit and stayed at his, at his place. And he just, he just handed me guitars. But what was interesting, and I don't know that I ever told you this, John, but I remember before going out there, because we were still getting to know each other, I remember thinking, okay, so we're going to play some music because by this time, you know, he'd heard me play a little bit. So he knew that I could actually play. And I didn't just say that I play guitar. I actually, actually do. So he said, yeah, we need to, we need to sit down and play. So I'm thinking, what are we going to play? Because I don't play that metal stuff. I'm, I'm a blues guy. It turns out. So is he, we have like identical tastes in music. So it, it was really an interesting kind of revelation to say, oh, okay. So he loves, he loves that music too, but his roots are very similar to mine. And that was, that was really interesting. I just kind of assumed yeah, right. that anybody who makes it in whatever genre they're in, that's, that's their, that's right. kind of their yeah. whole thing. Yeah. Well, that same assumption follows drugs. You know, you assume, right. Anybody can, mm-hmm. that's what you do. You know, when, when I started doing speaking engagements, people are shocked. They go, oh, you're so erudite, you're so smart. And I said, you know, I kind of win the, the Mensa Award because your, your, <laughs> your standards for me are set so low that just me <laughs> right. saying a three word, I win. So when I stand up and I start talking, people are like, oh, my God, he can string two sentences together. He can string five sentences together. He can string ten sentences together. Oh, that's incredible. So the expectations are not great. You know, heavy metal takes a hit. And it's a shame, too, because first of all, there's a lot of great heavy metal players and great, yeah. great instrumentalists and, and very smart people. Many of them are my friends. But it's not the music I listen to. You know, the music I listen to is still the music that I fell in love with between the ages of 12 and 20. And that's usually the music you fall in love with is the music between 12 and 20. And you'll listen to that for the rest of your life, no matter how embarrassing it may be to other people or to your kids. It doesn't matter. It just turns out that my 12 to 20 was the Beatles, the Stones, the Who, Floyd. I mean, I had the golden age of rock and roll. So I was blessed at that. But I was a pop kid and I love pop music and you know metal is not the music I listen to um I know a lot of the guys and I appreciate it but it's not what I listen to I am a blues guy as Steve knows I listen to blues all the time I mean I'm in love with this new Kevno record because it's just phenomenal right so I can listen to Sonny Boy Williamson and Muddy Waters and the most obscure blues guys all day long blues to me is my classical music blues to me is my comfort zone music blues to me is my timeless music will never change it just is, and I can listen to it any time of the day or night. And that and Beatles, by the way, because I write a Beatles column. And yes, I know more about the Beatles than most pe- rational people should. But I don't okay. know the most about the Beatles because I choose to have a life. <laughs> All right, and that's so I am a Beatle lunatic. You're such a blues fan that your name you your name is kind of an homage to to BB King. Yes, it's JJ French. Yeah, that's it yeah. is, which which occurred to me. At some point, because uh, because I said, yeah, why did that automatically roll off my tongue? You know, like the French was important because it was my middle name and I needed a stage name. But the JJ kind of thing, like B.B. King, J.J. French, yeah, you know. But, I mean, B.B. King is just a giant, although Albert King is my Lord and Savior. Okay, <laughs> Albert King is truly my Lord and Savior, followed by Mike Bloomfield. Maybe he's Jesus. And then, I don't know, the Holy Ghost may be... Uh, Jimmy, you know, yeah. there's my troika, you know, of, of great <laughs> guitar players. Um, but those are the people that really inspired me. We haven't even talked really Twisted Sister, but I really wanted to. When I was reading your book, I actually thought of the video for We're Not Going to Take It. And Niedemeyer, did you, you know, just saying, what are you going to do with your life? Like, did you write this video? Was this, <clears throat> I mean, because it was kind of your life in a way. Or- um, it, well, D wrote that song and he was, we were all Animal House fans. Yeah. Talk about a non-PC movie. Oh, right up, there, yeah. right up there with Blazing Saddles, never to be done again. You know, my daughter we went to this a lot. Yeah, my daughter went to Oregon, and they had a, a screening for them because it was the like the 40th anniversary or whatever. And the students were appalled. Like this is the this is the worst movie ever. Nobody laughed. Like I don't get it. Why do we salute this movie? And Horrifying. Yeah. So yes. Yeah. So anyway, but back in the so 80s, anyway, it was wonderful. We were, <laughs> We're yes. a big fan. Of course. And, uh, and so D came up with the idea and, and gave it to the director and they, they wrote the script. Again, that was brilliant. It was absolutely brilliant on his, on his end. And, and we've got Mark Metcalf, you know, and he wrote that, what do you want to do with your life? And the funny thing about Mark Metcalf is we do celebrity autograph signings, you know, so I, I run into him every once in a while. And I say to Mark, does a day go by 
where someone doesn't walk up to you and goes, say that, man. Just say it. Just say it. Yeah. What do you? He goes, no. I said, how do you feel about it? He goes, I love it. Yeah. You know, I love it. I mean, I, I think it was Don Henley or Glenn Fry. Someone said, how do you feel about playing Hotel California over and over? And he goes, I have a unique propensity towards repetition. And the truth is, is that if you're a performer, that's what you do. I, I think I read an interview with Ray Davies many years ago. And someone said, before Van Halen's You Really Got Me came out, right? This is just Ray Davies and the Kinks back in the 70s. Someone said, do you ever get sick of playing You Really Got Me? And Ray Davies' answer to the guy was, let me explain this to you, man. Flip hamburgers for a living or play You Really Got Me? Are you really <laughs> fucking kidding me? Are you kidding me? I mean, so when people say to me, am I sick of playing? We're not going to take it. When I'm standing in front of 100,000 people in Europe in some country that barely speaks English and I got 100,000 people and I have it on film over all over the place, you go, shit. I mean, they turned us into a butter commercial in South America, huevos con aceite, which means eggs and oil and butter. And it's a commercial and it goes, huevos con aceite, huevos con aceite. <laughs> <laughs> which is eggs and oil and lemon. I don't know what the fuck that has to do with anything. We get down to South America. The promoter says, by the way, they turn the song to this butter commercial and everyone sings huevos con aceite. And lo and behold, there's t-shirts with the twist logo, two fried eggs on them, right? They're being oh, yeah. sold outside the arenas. And so we do, we're not going to take in. And then Eddie Ojeda, our, our guitar player, speaks Spanish. He said, Eddie, talk to the crowd and tell them, you know, so he does his Spanish thing. And we go into huevos con acete. And I got like 80,000 kids screaming, huevos con acete. So how does that suck? <laughs> suck. You know, my, my daughter says, dad, they're singing. We're not going to Brexit right now. My daughter lives in English. She sends oh. me a clip. BBC, there's a big demonstration in front of the Big Ben. And it's like, we're not going to Brexit. And then NPR had a survey of the top 30 songs that unite America. On that list, starting at 30 to number one, was Blown in the Wind, American Pie, um, We Shall Overcome. Like, we're talking some of the greatest sure. anthems in the world. And they're counting down and counting down and counting down. And we passed Born in the USA, Blown in the Wind, We Shall Overcome. And we get to number three, and it's We're Not Going to Take <laughs> and the two above us were some gospel songs, which I really didn't know. And I thought to myself, we made number three on the NPR list of songs at United America. So you can hate Twisted Sister. You can think we suck. You can think we're a hairband. You can deride us for whatever way you want to deride us. You can't take away and you can never take away the impact that that song has had in the world. It has been monstrous, and I'm really proud. In fact, this afternoon, I was at our warehouse in downtown. I'm walking up Amsterdam Avenue, and I pass a restaurant, and they're cleaning up, and I hear we're not going to take it blasting out of the restaurant, and the, and, the, and the guys are in there cleaning up, and I walk in, and I went, I said, what's up with the music? And they go, oh, man, we love this song. We love this song. And I was like, cool, that's my song. Said, what do you mean? And of course, you know, I want to you know, suck everything I can for you know, momentary you know, stardom. <laughs> I go, that's me. Oh, man, that's great. But anyway, it's great to have those songs. I, I could see why you have your own podcast. You got the, the JJ French connection, which uh, was which really cool. You also bring in your yeah. friends on your podcast. That's, I love that. Yeah, well, Steve's on this week. Oh, how'd you get, how'd you get Steve? I hear he's a hard get. Man, you know, he's, he had people talk to my people, and we worked it out. But, um, that you were able to fit it in. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so JJ, whenever you have some good stories to tell, then you can come on the podcast again. Or you know, I'm just—I don't understand. I mean, whatever, fine. And I appreciate this—the opportunity. And I'm—I hope you learned something. I hope there was more surprising to you. That oh, it was more than you expected. Tremendously, yeah. This is yeah. so much more than we expected. Yeah, it was a full. It was chock full of information and the memoir, everything about it. It was a really, really fun read. And 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 now, by the way. Uh, I'm getting ready because I have in 15 minutes, I have to do my Steve Bender oh my God. My podcast, <laughs> which is the JJ French connection beyond the music, the J and spell J Y J Y. If you're on Spotify, if you're on Apple, if you're on iTunes, or if you're on podcast one, that's where you go to hear my podcast. So now, uh, I got okay. to go, guys. thank you so hey, very guys, much. Thank, you. thank awesome. you guys so much. Yeah. I loved thank it. Thank you. Loved every minute. Take Bye. care. See you later. Cheers. Bye. All right. Good, good times with JJ French. Should I double up everything? A wonderful, wonderful podcast. 
Twisted Business is the book, Lessons from My Life in Rock and Roll. I was uh, just, I was surprised by how much I was uh, drawn in just because it was not only his story, but what he learned from his life experience. The book was fabulous. There are some great lessons in there, but as a bizwar, there was a lot of memoir. And I learned a lot of stuff I did not know about Twisted Sister, and we lived through the 80s. I learned a lot from him and a lot about the band. We highly recommend it. The book is out right now by J.J. French and Steve Farber, and we thank them so much for uh, coming onto our show. We have new episodes every Friday. Wherever you listen, we're available everywhere. Please subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. And a thank you to Kim Dower. And as always, a big thank you to Pantheon Podcast, as we are a proud member. So until next week, this is Dave. This is Holly. Check you later. Over and out. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.